Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that I will be in conversation with the brilliant author and broadcaster Candice Brathwaite at The Lyric in Soho on the 1st of November, talking all about the themes of this podcast and more. You can book tickets at fane.co.uk forward slash Pandora. So we know that loneliness can lead people to feeling more hostile towards others and also to perceiving the world as a more threatening place. And we see the ramifications of this playing out politically. You're listening to season two of Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring the ins and outs of sex, self-care and sadness and lobbing big questions at my guests like, could a four-day work week ever really take off? Why is society getting lonelier? And what would a fair justice system look like? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. What does it mean to be lonely? What does a lonely world look like? Norina Hertz is an economist and thought leader based at the Institute for Global Prosperity at UCL and the author of four books. Her most recent book, The Lonely Century, is a fascinating and sprawling look at the epidemic of loneliness, which saw Norina travelling all over the world to see what loneliness looks like and how it manifests. In her fascinating book, Norina argues that loneliness is not a symptom of the pandemic, but the defining condition of the 21st century. In our chat, recorded in late June, we discuss why loneliness is higher in cities where people walk faster, how architecture can encourage loneliness, and what the man who sold his car to pay for cuddles tells us about the loneliness economy, an array of products and services that encourage the idea that you can buy your way out of loneliness. And, on a positive note, we talk about how robots can help with social care. There are even little old ladies in Japan who knit beanies for their robot carers. I know too much. I start by asking Norina, what is the biggest myth about loneliness? I think one of the biggest myths is definitely the fact that it's something that predominantly affects elderly people. And there there's definitely a loneliness crisis amongst the elderly. I mean, in the United Kingdom, two in five pensioners, their main form of company is their television or pet. So so it is a problem amongst the elderly for sure. But actually, the loneliest generation is the young, from 10 to 34-year-olds. So I'm defining young quite broadly, but this is the this swathe of people is actually the loneliest. So it's a crisis which is getting worse. You know, we know this because since 1970, researchers have actually been actively monitoring and measuring loneliness across the world. And what we can see is rising loneliness levels really from the 1980s onwards, um, then accelerating significantly in about 2010, which is when we started using our smartphones en masse, and then, of course, um, accelerating even more 
during the pandemic and even before the pandemic one in five millennials said that they didn't have a single friend at all three in five 18 to 34 year olds said that they were lonely always or often uh, one in 10 adults in general said that they were lonely always or often so even before the pandemic it was a real problem globally and it's it's definitely gotten even worse it's really heartbreaking to hear those statistics i wanted to ask you what is the difference because i feel like these things often get conflated between being alone and loneliness yes that's a great question the two don't necessarily coexist so you can be on your own and not feel lonely i'm somebody who you know i write books i like spending time on my own but i don't consider those times lonely times in the same way that you can be surrounded by people and actually feel lonely so it's it's less to do with your physical situation and it's more to a feeling of craving a feeling of craving connection craving intimacy um, craving togetherness and that feeling not being met and that craving for connection you know can be a feeling of craving friends or closer contact with family members or um or even closer connections with your neighbours, but it also can be a feeling of being disconnected from your government, from politicians, from your employer, from your colleagues at work. I was really staggered. I just never thought about it before like this, to read about the physical side effects of loneliness. Our blood pressure, cholesterol and cortisol rises. It decreases our life expectancy. And is as damaging to our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. How did you determine that? So why loneliness is so bad for our physical health is because essentially we are creatures of togetherness. We're hardwired to connect. So in evolutionary terms, we've been designed not to feel lonely. We've been designed instead to, if we are feeling alone, lonely, um, go and find our tribe to hunt and gather with, go and find other people to um, be together with, safety and numbers. And the way that our body tells us that we should do this is essentially when we're lonely, it puts us into this state of high alert. As you correctly said, our blood pressure goes up, our heart rate goes up, our levels of cholesterol go up, our stress hormone cortisol goes up, all of these signaling to our body, um, don't be on your own, don't feel lonely, go and find your tribe. And in contemporary life, we don't do this and or we often don't respond. And instead we stay in this protracted state of high alert for days, months, even years. And that takes our, its toll on our body. So it's this state of high alert. Like when you're driving and you put your engine in first gear, it's a good, um, thing to do initially because it gets your car moving fast um, but you don't want to stay in first gear for a protracted period because that would be bad for your engine well, it's a similar thing going on with loneliness it's our body's response to a state that it's saying you shouldn't be in but we are staying in it and then it's damaging our bodies 
Loneliness has been on the rise throughout this century. It's by no means a new pandemic specific thing. And you look at the many ways in which the unprecedented pace of, I shouldn't really use the word unprecedented, should I? That was that was a bad choice of word given how much it has been used in the last year. Pace of modern life, uh, mass migration to cities and the rise in people living alone. And you write that civility is lower in cities despite the high density, which seems like a real paradox to me. Could you explain or expand a little bit on that? The denser a city, the um, less civil its inhabitants are. And also the um, richer a city, the faster its inhabitants walk, both of which... <laughs> Um, incivility and walking very fast, <laughs> neither of which are great for um, actually feeling connected to those around you. I mean, I, I did an experiment as part of my research. I went to Euston Station and just stood kind of outside the station and looked at how many people walked by me without even looking at me. And after I got to 50, I just stopped counting because it was so depressing. In cities, you know, with the relentless pace um, and people walking around with their headphones on and their heads on their phones, well, no wonder many people feel lonely because they're not even getting that smile, that nod. And even before, of course, we have masks and you couldn't see the smile. You know, of course, you're going to feel lonelier. And density and civility, it's partly to do with the fact that it's almost overwhelming um, it can be overwhelming the scale um, of the number of people you come across in a city. In the same way that when you go to a supermarket and if you see 24 jam jars to choose from, it sometimes can feel too much and you end up not even buying a single jar. Well, that's how it can be in cities mm. when there are all these people around you and it can just feel too much to start engaging or nodding or smiling or saying hello to passers-by. So your default can just be well to do nothing so I think or to be to batten down the hatches yeah or to be actively rude I guess as well but it's also um it's not only that we live together less than in the past we actually do less with other people than in the past so um people are less likely to be members of parent teacher associations people are less likely of course to go to church people are less likely to be members of trade unions so there's a whole host of communal activities that we used to do that are depleted and have been depleted in recent years and that's part of the reason that we do feel lonelier for sure. And why is that? Do people feel too busy or just can't be bothered, doesn't feel relevant to their lives anymore in a way that perhaps those gatherings used to? I think it's a combination of factors. I think yes, partly you know, people are working longer hours People have longer commutes, so people have less time time off um, to do things. It's partly, yes, the um, religion and organised religions have, on the whole, not morphed to meet the needs of more secular-leaning population. You know, what are the new cathedrals of the 21st century? What should they look like, I think, is a really important question to ask, but it, it's not just that we do less with others um, than in the past, it's also that increasingly we have adopted 
an ever more individualistic mindset. And we see this even in pop song lyrics, which I found fascinating that if you look at researchers looked at pop song lyrics from the 1980s onwards, and what they found was that words like we, us and our have been steadily supplanted from the 80s onwards with words like I, me, myself. And so we increasingly, yeah, which is just, and and this me-centric, I-focused world was inevitably going to beget a lonelier one. Yes, yes. It's 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 a, so. What you're saying is it's a, it's a inevitable consequence of individualism. Um, of individualism to the degree that we've adopted it. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, in part. And talking about community, you also looked at, um, and I loved this because it's just not it's just not something I would consider, but it makes total sense at how loneliness is exacerbated by the architecture that we build. And you looked at some of the ways around the world which have been designed to inhibit community, didn't you, to dictate who is welcome there and who is not? Spikes on benches to deter um, homeless people from being able to have somewhere to sleep, or whether we're talking about the shopping malls, which have kind of special um, lights in them that expose acne skin to dissuade teenagers from hanging out there, or whether it's the, which is quite incredible, or then there's the, um, then there are the, these very high pitched sounds also to um, dissuade teenagers from hanging out, that some uh, streets are issuing. Um, So apparently as we get older, these cells in our ears die off and we can't hear super high-pitched sounds, whereas young people can. So there are these sonic ways to keep people out, which I found quite something. And then, of course, there's the, um, and this is across the world, um, an array of buildings, um, housing complexes, which have been built where they have um, special entrances for those paying um, the premium amounts and less desirable entrances for those Um, who may be part of social housing that's integrated with the projects, with even in the most extreme cases, the playgrounds segregated so that the kids in the same building, but who are paying the social housing rent, aren't able to play with the kids whose parents are paying the premium rents. And that's something that's been going on in London and elsewhere too. That reminds me of... um that apartment block in Vauxhall, which was in the news, I think, recently, because they've got this incredible swimming pool, um, which is it's built really high up and it's got a glass bottom. And, you know, if you walk past it, it looks incredible, like you're in sort of Sao Paulo or something. But only the people who own their flats outright, I think, can use it. If you only own a bit of it, you can't use the swimming pool, which is just an extraordinarily divisive way to allocate those apartment perks, I suppose. Not even a perk, but it, I, I was just so surprised by that only some residents can use that pool. There's always been people who will pay a premium for exclusivity. And the question is, at which times is this just not acceptable? And where do we draw the line? Um, you know, this isn't saying, you know, there's never the case that you can save up and, you know, I don't know, go somewhere where 
um, you know, money, of course, is the dividing factor of creating exclusivity versus non-exclusivity across the board. But but when when is this unacceptable? Where do we need to draw the line? That's what we should be need to be asking as a society. And also, how do we design um, spaces so that they are more inclusive? And there's a brilliant example of this in Chicago, where they built um, social housing blocks with branches of the Chicago Public Library on the ground floor. Um, so this was creating a place for residents in the tower blocks to congregate and hang out, but also creating an incentive for people in the neighbourhood who otherwise might have been a bit sniffy and, oh, we don't want these buildings coming up in our neighbourhood, actually giving them an incentive to come and then mix with the residents of these buildings. So how can we also use space and create more inclusive communities is the other part of that, um, is the other question we should be asking. Because so many of those free and easily accessible third places where communities come to gather have been eradicated, haven't they? And in the UK, you report a third of youth clubs and nearly 800 public libraries have shut down since 2008. Um, libraries were my absolute favourite place as a child, so that just breaks my heart, especially because books are such a salve or can be such a salve to loneliness. What is the answer here? Is it more local funding, investment in communities in that way to open up more of those free third spaces? Definitely. And I mean, it's, it's a pretty obvious policy platform. I mean, who's going to object to um, having mm. more libraries <laughs> in mm. their area? I mean, or having a library in many cases now in their area, no one. Do they just hemorrhage money? I think what happened was after 2008 and the financial crisis, governments mm. across the world went into this, you know, mindset of we've got to tighten our belts and this is a period of austerity and we can't spend money. And of course, you have all these um, different constituencies with quite a lot of lobbying power who are saying, oh, you can't cut us and you can't cut us and you can't cut us. But if you think about libraries or youth clubs or elderly daycare centres or public parks, spaces which all had massive, massively slashed budgets since 2008. These are ones, you know, which don't have very loud voices typically. And mm. so as governments, you know, decided where to wield the axe, they did it on these spaces, you know, which didn't have kind of great power to push back against it. And refunding the infrastructure of community really needs to be at the heart of um, what government's policies are as post-pandemic they help us as societies reconnect because people need physical spaces to be together to do things together um, not only if they're to feel less lonely but also if we as a society are to come together again. Meanwhile there are some slightly wacky phenomena to combat loneliness. There's the website Rent-A-Friend oh. and there are other websites where you can rent a hugger, non-sexual transaction, just, just hugging. And you interviewed a man who was so addicted to buying hugs, believing they alleviated his loneliness, that he had given up his home and now lived in his car, which was a very painful irony. It was really sad it was very moving, actually. I, met, I, I went and met him. I had, I had 
heard that people were paying to be cuddled. And I um, got in touch with a professional cuddler in California in Venice Beach, Jean. And I had a number of conversations with her. And then I said, I'm coming to California. Do you think any of your clients will speak to me? And she introduced me to this gentleman, not his real name, Carl. And um, I went and met him. And this was a nice looking man in his late 40s. He explained that he'd moved to Los Angeles. Um, he was divorced. He had moved there for work. He was an executive at a media company. And he was very lonely. He didn't know anyone. He didn't have a friendship network. He didn't have a support network. And he said, you know, he really missed somebody giving him a hug, somebody putting, you know, a reassuring hand on his arm, you know, that physical contact you get from friends. And and then he heard that you could pay to be cuddled and he started seeing this professional cuddler gene. And he said it was absolutely transformative. It changed his life. He felt so much happier. He was so much more motivated. He was so much more productive at work. And then he said, you're not using my real name, are you? And I said, no. And he said, well, in the last few months, seeing Jean hasn't been enough and I've been paying other people to cuddle me. And I said, that must be really expensive. And he said, yes. And he, I said, well, how, how do you afford it? And that's when he said, I live in my car. And this is a guy who's working for, you know, has a good job at a good company, who is now sleeping in his car, showering at the 24-7 gym, leaving his food in the fridge at work just to be able to feel connected, to feel cherished, to be held. And that it was it was very moving. I came away from that meeting actually feeling you know, really disturbed. And obviously this is an extreme case, but um, I think it shows two things. First, it's an extreme example of how bad the situation is for so many people, how how lonely people feel, but also a manifestation of what I call the loneliness economy of this entire array of goods and services and products um, that are springing up to help alleviate loneliness, of which paid cuddling and rented friends, and yes, I rented a friend in New York myself to experience it. You know, these are, again, extreme manifestations of, but it's part of a bigger phenomenon. I'm interested to know, did he, had he considered trying dating apps? Was he interested in finding a mate who he didn't have to pay for cuddles? Yes. So I asked him that, and that is a good question. I did ask him, and he said that he had tried dating apps and he had found it really kind of unsatisfactory. He was like a, a round of, I like her, she doesn't like me, she likes me, I don't like her. And he's and he felt he was very disenchanted with it. And so he'd put that on pause. Um yeah, it is it is kind of in some sense dystopic, the idea that people are paying for cuddles and paying for um friends. But of course, nineteenth century English literature is full of um you know, ladies and their paid companions. So the idea that ladies you, in waiting, that's what they were, yeah, right? Ladies in waiting, paid companions. Mm. You know, so I mean, mm. there is a history of um, mm. paid friendships. Um, but I, I'm not suggesting that that is the solution. But 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 it's not as weird as we might instinctively think. And another uh, bit that I was very, I was actually moved by this, elderly women in Japan knitting bonnets for their robot carers. Yes, yeah, so Japan has really um, 
is ahead of the rest of the world when it comes to using robots for social care, purposes of social care. And there they have robots um, who do exercise classes with um, people at nursing homes and act as their companion and friends. And, and people get very attached to their robot carers. And yes, so there, you even have cases of women knitting bonnets for them. And again, it sounds kind of extreme, but you know, my, um, my sister-in-law told me the other day about how uh, she was making greeting cards with my two-year-old niece. And you know, they'd made one for grandma and they'd made one for, um, they'd made some for the cousins. And she turned around to my niece and said, who should we make, for, who should we make one for next? And my niece said, for Alexa. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, and I think, if I think about my own interaction, I don't know if you have an Alexa, but I, if I think about my own relationship with my Alexa, I do feel that I, you know, have got some sort of a relationship with her and do feel affectionate towards her. If anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, it's those um, voice-enabled assistants that people kind of typically put in there. Um, kitchen. Um, so we can feel attached to inanimate objects and social robots, I think, will be a growth area in coming years, for sure. Yeah, I suppose people are very emotional about their phones, aren't they? Just seeing the presence of their telephone makes them feel comforted. And we dress up our telephone in all sorts of nutty little covers. And I have a Google Home, not an Alexa. And I wouldn't say I'm have any emotional pull towards her I do think of her as a her but my children definitely think of they're one and three so they are still quite little to be fair but they definitely think of it as a pet I suppose and my son can hardly say any words at all but he can say googie and he also tries to swipe when he's in a magazine on a magazine and he's never used my phone before but it's just learned behavior isn't it so he tries to swipe the pages of a magazine which blows my mum's mind, which I fully understand. <laughs> Robots uh, in the domestic, professional and sexual settings are on the rise. Is this kind of end of days or could they help connect people or is it a bit of both? I think it's a bit of both. Um, I've seen some really heartwarming applications. There's a startup that makes a robot called LEQ. It looks a bit like Bod and they shipped and it's specially designed to be a sidekick for the elderly, a companion for the elderly. And they shipped thousands of their robots to Florida during the um, height of the pandemic. And the testimonies of the retirees who received them were really moving. You know, I would have felt so isolated had I not had my LEQ. My LEQ was my friend in this time. So I do, I do feel actually that robots do have a positive role to play, um, especially amongst uh, groups of the population who are being underserved when it comes to um, companionship. In the United States, 60% of old people's home residents never have any visitors at all. So, you know, having a robot friend is definitely better than not having any friend. But I worry about what it does to us as a society if we increasingly subcontract care to robots. Um, you know, if, if it becomes, and robots are becoming ever more intelligent, ever more emotionally intelligent. So, you know, if we choose to have a robot as a friend rather than a human being, 
um, we won't have to practice these skills that actually are really, really important for inclusive democracy, reciprocity, civility, thinking about others' needs as well as our own. You know, your robot friend will be with you whether you're, will be there um, come rain or shine, if you're mean to it, if you ignore it, if you, you never need to ask your robot friends how they're feeling. So I worry that we will learn um, unhelpful for a society skills and talking about kids. You know, you do see this with um, Alexa or Google Homes or whatever your device is, that because you don't have to say please or thank you to these devices, although I actually consciously and mindfully do. Um, you have some parents saying, you know, my kids are becoming raging assholes because they're, um, they're just, um, you know, sparking orders at Alexa all day and then taking that into the real world and kind of being horribly rude with a shop assistant or something as well. But there's also, I think, this um, bigger question that if we don't feel that we need to be there for a friend in need, if we feel that we don't have to be the person, um, you know, who's holding the hand or stroking the arm of, a, of an elderly or even a dying relative, if we don't have to care ourselves because we can subcontract that, what kind of a society will we be? Will we be, I worry that we will become just a less caring society. So I think our challenges to always outdo the robots in terms of care and compassion, you know, see the evolution of social robots as actually a real impetus for us to always deliver more on those fronts. That's, that is what my hope is. And what you're talking about is there's, it's basically not reciprocal. It's just take, take, take. And I suppose that's a slightly worrying extension of on-demand culture now, which is, I want this now. Yes, I want this now. I don't have any responsibilities towards anyone else. Um, I want my rights met without mm. acknowledging that I also have responsibilities. Yeah. And now a quick word from my sponsor, Zen Move, an online nationwide law firm that puts the well-being of its clients first. Moving house is stressful. For those lucky enough to be getting on the property ladder, there's a lot to get your head round. Contracts and deadlines and oodles of legal jargon. So why not eliminate that stress with Zen Move and their positive approach to conveyancing? The key is in the name. Their smooth, friendly and clutter-free approach will ensure that no one tears their hair out or forgets to feed the cat while wading through paperwork. Head over to zenmove.co.uk to get a quote and to discuss your move the Zen way. We obviously can't have a discussion about loneliness without looking at social media Comparisonitis is the thief of joy, but BOMP, as you call it, a belief that others are more popular than you, is a big contributing factor towards loneliness. This probably sounds quite facetious, but if everyone feels like that, can't that come some way towards eradicating it? And 
If not, what's the answer? Because social media and the rolling visibility of our lives or most of our lives, I know not everyone uses social media, is not going away. The fact that aren't we all aware that we're prone to a kind of thinking error, essentially, that you scroll on our feeds and it just seems like everyone's more popular than me, everyone's got more likes, everyone's got more retweets, everyone's got more friends. You're saying it's kind of being conscious of that enough to solve it. Um, I don't think it is because you know, many of us know that and still get that feeling, <laughs> that feeling of, oh, you know, why is no one retweeted this or why is no one like this? Um, it, I think it's just, it's too natural a human response. So, um, so I think knowledge in this case actually doesn't go that far in helping mitigate the pain. And when, and when it's young people, especially, the pain is really real. It's not only damaging, but also encourages them to do all they can to hustle ever harder for the um, social currency that um, social media may reward them with. And you know, there's another girl who I interviewed, a very eloquent 14-year-old in Los Angeles, and she said to me, it's as if we're talking of her generation, it's as if we're living our lives like avatars in a video game. Um, speaking to that kind of the recognition she had that um, her and her friends were just presenting ever less authentic selves in order to be liked, but that that was coming at a price as well, a sense of disconnection from true self. So um, social media you know, got lots to answer for in today's loneliness crisis, but also because of the extent, and you know, we're all aware of this now, the extent of vitriol and abuse and bullying that takes place on these platforms with 65% of UK students saying that they've experienced cyberbullying firsthand and three in five women aged between um, 18 to 34 saying that they've experienced abuse on Facebook. So, of course, if you're being abused or even if you're witnessing abuse, the world is going to feel lonelier. Social media isn't going to disappear. So the question is, what do we do about it? And I think there is a real role for government here, uh, for sure. And actually, in the UK, there is a new bill that's current that's been drafted and published. It came out um, in May um, where it's called the Online Safety Bill. And that actually goes a considerable distance uh, because it's exact, it's because this legislation demands a duty of care on the part of social media platforms to ensure that they are not creating um, physical or psychological harm and um, levying significant penalties if they do so. Now, this is draft legislation and um, we need to see how it plays out in practice, but we need to move in that sort of direction for sure, because in many ways, social media companies are the tobacco companies of the 21st century and really should be regulated as such. We keep on hearing that it's impossible to regulate. Oh, we can't, we can't stop trolling and oh, we're doing everything we can. But they're not. They just need to spend more money on it. It has to be the number one outlay of finances for them, and it's not. Yeah, I mean, they obviously don't care is the truth. And um, 
They don't care. Their whole business model is predicated on us staying on our devices. So they know, for example, that you're more likely to retweet um, something um, research has shown people are more likely to retweet sentences which have hate terms in them, for example, and are angry and are bullying. That's more likely to get retweeted. You know, they could change their algorithms so that that isn't the case. But of course, they don't because they actually want people to be on the phones retweeting. They don't care what they're retweeting. They just want them on their phones. And, um, and yet, you're absolutely right. These companies are making a fortune. If they just use the tiny bit of their profits um, for good to actually seriously address bullying, hate speech, um, trolling on their platforms, to seriously um, to rethink their algorithms so that hate and vitriol didn't rise up so high, to actually um, make sure that damaging posts were removed immediately or never even seen. You know, there's so much they could do, and yet you know, the will clearly isn't there. But, but I do think the tide is turning in terms of regulation. I think this UK safety, um, online safety bill is a big step. And my book's been coming out in country after country, and it's been really interesting speaking um, to audiences in other countries and learning that um, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Norway, um, these kind of conversations are happening now at government levels seriously about what can we do to rein uh, social media in. And in the United States, the um, new head of the equivalent of the UK's um, kind of regulator for internet and social media companies, the new appointee is someone who's been you know, very assertive in her um, in the past and things she's written about her concern about social media companies and big tech in general. And so it may be that in America we see steps actively taken as well. One of the ways in which the modern world exacerbates loneliness is with the dissolution of micro interactions and those little pockets of friction. You don't talk to someone at the bus stop or when you're doing your supermarket shop, you just check out a self-checkout or you order it online even when you're queuing for your coffee or standing alongside other parents at the school gates you're just as likely if not more likely to be scrolling through your phone than chatting to someone the reversal of this feels counterproductive friction's been removed because life is getting faster and sleeker and more seamless how do we introduce friction again without feeling like we're going backwards. The first step is recognising that these micro exchanges actually play a huge part in making us feel less lonely and more connected to others. So research has found that even a 30 second chat with a barista at a Starbucks makes a huge difference to how lonely you feel or how connected to others you feel. So, um, so I think the first step is actually realising for very little effort, you could feel a lot better. And I think it's something, I mean, it's definitely something that I, as I was researching the book, I much more consciously, you know, took that beat, took that pause in my day and chatted for a few seconds to my postman, Alan, or to my greengrocer, Phil, or... Um, to Morford, who runs the local cafe. And I would consciously do it much more mindfully than I'd ever done it in the past. And it felt better. 
I mean, life felt better. I definitely felt more connected to those around me. And I think during the pandemic, a lot of us really appreciated the value that we got from those stalwarts of our local community who just we could have that little exchange to. And I think the challenge moving forward is that uh, we don't succumb to the allure of, yes, frictionless, contactless living to the extent that we lose these moments. And, you know, because, of course, it is much easier to order your book on Amazon rather than go to your local bookstore. It is much easier to order your food on Deliveroo and not go to your local cafe or do your yoga with Adrienne rather than go to your local yoga studio. But actually those interactions not only make a huge difference to how we feel, but again, are moments where we practice the skills that are so important if we want to live in an inclusive and tolerant society. Because you know, it's when you're in the supermarket and you see an elderly lady reaching for a tin and you walk over and you help her or it's when you're in your yoga studio and you're you consciously think about where to put down your mat so that you don't downward dog in someone else's face those are moments when we're consciously thinking about others and not only ourselves and it's important that we keep practicing that skill in our day-to-day lives as well. Part of lockdown that many people highlighted speaking about those skills as one of the few things that they appreciated about the hellscape of the last 18 months was that kind of reinvigoration or a certain energy around the idea of local community. How much do you think we've rebuilt community, which is such a key part of combating loneliness post-COVID? I'm really hopeful that we'll take some of those new behaviours forward, whether it's shopping for your neighbour or sharing food via Olio or enjoying the simplicity of a walk. But will we get tempted back to the bigger, noisier, experiential economy and all those things will dissolve again? Well, my hope is that we will hang on to these things that we've learned, the positives um, that you rightly identify. My fear is that we won't. And hope is not a lottery ticket that we just sit on the sofa and clutch hope is actually a kind of call to action and I think it's we need to we need to try and take that with us we need to consciously nurture our local communities moving forwards moving forward you know consciously shop in our local shops consciously speak to our postman or our neighbor you know show up at community events if they're happening initiate community events there's so much we can do to feel more connected to each other but we have to put in the work community doesn't just happen you have to co-create it if you want to reap its benefits something else which really relates to i think the past year that you wrote about which i was really interested by and I think I think it will make sense to a lot of people but I wonder how many of us have actually ever thought about it until I read it in your book is the idea that loneliness doesn't bond us or draw us closer together necessarily it can alienate us from one another and can actually turn us against each other how does loneliness result in hostility and how can we avoid that so you're right I did find in my research that When you're lonely, and of course this isn't everyone who's lonely, but on average when you're lonely, you do have a tendency to 
see others, see the rest of the world as a more threatening place. There was research done with siblings. And what researchers found was that the lonelier sibling, even though they were living in the same geography, perceived their local environment as more hostile and threatening. And then there was also research done with mice, which showed that um, when a mice is kept in a cage, the longer a mouse is isolated, the more aggressively it lashes out to a new mouse when the mouse is introduced into the cage. So we know that loneliness can lead people to feeling more hostile towards others and also to perceiving the world as a more threatening place. And we see the ramifications of this playing out politically. And that was, that was really very striking that I found in my research a real clear link between the rise in what we might think of as more extremist form of forms of politics in recent years and the rise of loneliness with, um, if you think about somebody like Donald Trump, I heard from you know, many Trump voters and what came out from their stories, many of them, was how lonely they felt. And I did similar interviews in France with people who were voting for Le Pen, France's far-right party in Italy with people voting for the League, Italy's far-right party in Germany for Alternative for Deutschland, their far-right party. And again and again, I heard how lonely these people felt and how they had found community in these far-right organisations, but also how these organisations were clearly speaking effectively to this sense that they had that the world was a hostile place. Um, because if we think about the rise of right-wing populism, in particular in recent years, it hasn't only been so successful because it's tapped into this sense of loneliness that people have and a craving for community. And if we think about something like Trump rallies with the branded outfits and the chants, you know, they've really delivered a theatre of community, wielding community like a weapon. But these parties have also spoken very effectively to that other aspect of loneliness, that hostility and fear of others with their anti-immigrant rhetoric, with their anti-other rhetoric as well. Yeah, so it's obviously not that everyone who's feeling lonely is going to vote for parties at the extremes, but we do see that voters of these parties are disproportionately lonely. Clearly, loneliness is a multifaceted, multifactorial, multifactorial <laughs> issue. And of course, there is not just one solution, but a key theme is connection and caring for others, which makes us feel purposeful. And you cite something called collective effervescence, which is a term I love, which is the joyful intoxication we get from doing things with another person. And I wondered for our listeners, can you recommend some easy steps towards this as we ease out of the pandemic? There's actually a lot that we can do to um, help ensure that moving forward, this is a less lonely world. First, we can put our phones down more and be more present with those around us, really make an effort to do that. We can break out of our digital privacy bubbles and take off our headphones and actually engage with those around us, whether it is the postman, our neighbour or 
um, somebody who we can see is visibly lonely. Be more grateful in general and say thank you more, whether it is to our friends, our partner, or even our Alexa. We can commit to doing more with others, especially with people who are not like ourselves. So let's make this the autumn of reconnection. We all deserve it. That's a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much, Norina, and for talking to me about Lonely Century. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate being invited. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Doing It Right. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. And if you'd like, you can buy my book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? From any bookshop you like, Independent Always Better, Try Hive if you're shopping online, in which I discuss lots more of the myths and anxieties of modern life. <laughs>